There are many subjects that we feel very uncomfortable talking about. And one of those is weight. How much we weigh. I know, especially for, for ladies, um, that can be an issue that's very private. You might share it with your best friend, someone else, but you don't discuss it openly. And, and frankly, guys, we don't care about weight, right? <laughs> well, unless we're going to the doctor or the gym and we weigh in, um, it's not an issue that we talk about a whole lot. But there are a lot of subjects like that. And uh, uh, what's interesting is last year a survey was done of 18 to 44-year-olds, and they said, which would you rather talk about, your weight or how much is in your savings account? And they said, we'd rather talk about our weight. See, talking about financial issues can be very uncomfortable for people. Uh, A lot of us have never had those conversations with our parents growing up. And a lot of you as a couple, if you're married, have found a lot of tension. You know, there's frustration, there's angst, there's finger pointing, uh, there's frustration over the lack of funds or the expenditure of funds. And so financial issues can cause a lot of stress in marriage. And I want you to know that God wants to speak into this area of our lives in a a way that's different from how the culture views things. Now, last week we looked at a story that Jesus told from the Gospel of Luke. And he said there was a man who was a farmer. He did very well. He he accumulated so much that he just built bigger and bigger barns to store up his stuff. And then uh, as he was planning for retirement, he died. And he left it all behind him. And in that story, we learned three foolish mistakes. One is to think everything you have is yours. Think it's all mine. I earned it, it's mine. When in reality, God provided it. He maybe gave you the skills, maybe gave you the job opportunity, maybe created the right market situation, but God has a large part um, to speak into our financial picture. The second um, foolish thing he did was to make decisions excluding God from them. Here's what I'm going to do with my money. And he didn't even consult God or consult the wisdom of Scripture in his planning. And then the third thing he did was think that everything was for himself for his future. He saved up for himself, and of course, he died. He left everything behind for someone else. And Jesus ended this parable by saying, this is how it will be for those who are rich toward themselves but not rich toward God. And we talked for a few minutes of of what it might mean to be rich toward God. And God's eternal. God lasts forever. His love lasts forever. It's the greatest virtue. Uh, His word lasts forever. And, of course, of all the things that you see around this room, there's only one physical thing that will last forever, and it's the people in this room. We are made to live forever. And when you put God's word and God's love into people, they live forever with God. And so we want to invest our lives into things that God is seeing as eternal and lasting. But many of us are stuck in a place where we say, Pastor, I'd love to do that. I really would. I just don't know how to do that. I don't know how to make that work. Well, I want to talk to you about that today because I believe there are some very clear and sound principles in Scripture that can put us on a path that will give us peace, that will, that will give us um, freedom, that will give us favor from God in our lives when we operate by biblical principles. So I want you to open up your Bibles to Luke, again we're in the Gospel of Luke, this time chapter 16. Jesus finished another parable, and he closed by saying this, starting at verse 10. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the righteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. 
Jesus says that what we've been given is kind of a test. A test to prove we are faithful. We brought up the word last week of stewardship. Stewardship is being a manager of someone else's resources. God gives us his stuff to manage for his glory. And he says, if you've been faithful with a little, then I can entrust you with more. But if you're not faithful with a little, why would I want to entrust you with more? God wants to do far more abundantly in our lives if we show ourselves to be faithful. But many, like Pharisees, says who are lovers of money, think Jesus' way is foolish. They, they laugh at it. They mock at it. And that's why what we're going to look at today is these four principles, I think, are countercultural. They'll go against things you popularly hear in our culture. And it even sometimes feels counterintuitive. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But I'll just tell you this. If you follow things God's way, you will experience an abundance in your life. Uh, Maybe not financially, but in so many areas of your life, you will see God's favor upon you. And these four principles are kind of like four legs of a table. And when a table has the four legs all solidly on the ground, there's stability. And this will give you stability. So what do we learn in scriptures. Well, first, oh, let me tell you this. Dave, Dave Ramsey is, a, is like a financial guru when it comes to our finances. And Dave Ramsey says to change the money thing, you've got to change you. 80% of personal finance, he says, is behavior, meaning we have to change what we're doing. We have to practice different habits. And then he makes this statement, which is the motto of his ministry. If you live like no one else, One day, you'll live like no one else. What he means by that is this. If you will do the things the people around you aren't doing right now, it's not popular, but if you do those hard things, the hard decisions, make the sacrifices, make the disciplined choices now, if you do those things now, down the road, you'll be able to do things the people around you can't afford to do because you got the foundation laid. And that's what we want to do, set a base for for our future Sometimes we, we say, God, you know, once I get to this place, when conditions are perfect, then I'll do it. But conditions are rarely perfect. In fact, if they're ever perfect. Rather than perfect conditions, we need prioritized decisions. I'm going to do these things that God tells me to do so that the conditions will improve. And I've talked to so many people who practice these things who said, you know what? They feel like they're in a perfect place now because they got the foundation laid. And so what are these four principles? First of all, give to God the first and the best. Give to God the first and the best. Now, most even Christian financial counselors won't say that, but I I just got to be honest with you. It's always good to honor God first. It's always good to get the cornerstone put in place. And what it does is acknowledges God as our provider. It acknowledges where the source of things come from. That's what the foolish farmer didn't do. Now, at the very early stage of the Bible, in Genesis, the very first chapters, there's a story about two sons of Adam and Eve. Their names are Cain and Abel. Now, Cain was a farmer. He raised crops, and Abel raised livestock. He raised sheep. And so it says, over the course of time, Cain brought a sacrifice from the produce of the field to the Lord. But it says that God didn't regard his sacrifice as acceptable. Abel, on the other hand, brought the firstborn of his flock, presented it to the Lord, and that's the acceptable sacrifice that the Lord received. Now, both had given something from what they raised, and it seems unfair. Why would God favor 
Abel's sacrifice more than Cain's. They both gave up something that they had. But here's the difference. Cain, it says, over the course of time, meaning he had, he had, he had already been gathering and a lot of stuff. At some point in time, he said, you know what? I ought to remember the Lord for this. And gathered some stuff up and brought it to the Lord. And God says, I don't want it. Don't want it. Abel brings God the firstborn of his flock. And he realizes there might might not be any more. This might be all I get. But I have to acknowledge God. And this is going to require faith to trust that the one who provided the first one will provide the second one and the third one and the fourth one. So he stepped out in faith, offered the firstborn to the Lord. And God says, now that's an acceptable sacrifice. There's a difference between giving God out of leftovers and getting, giving God the first fruits. And so, so we learn in, uh, in probably one of the most famous verses on trust in scriptures. I learned this in high school, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him. Guess what he'll do? He will make, your, make straight your paths. So God says, trust me. Trust me with all your heart. Believe in me in this. Believe in me and don't trust your own understanding. It may not make sense to you, but go where I'm leading. Because if you do that, and if you acknowledge, if you acknowledge that I'm leading you, which means you might say something to someone like, you know what, I'm going to do what God tells me to do. Or this is where the Lord's leading me. I need to be obedient to him. If you acknowledge him, he says he'll do this. He'll make your path straight. It's like God starts to orchestrate things in your life to where you get to the destination quicker. Because you've honored God. Even when it didn't make sense, it was, it was counterintuitive. God, I know this doesn't make sense to the people around me, but I'm going to do it because you say so. Now, we stop there oftentimes and say, man, I love that verse. And that's a good life verse. But read on just a little bit. The next couple verses. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Honor the Lord with your wealth and the first fruits of your produce. Immediately, Solomon, as he writes this, gives a couple practical ways in which we can acknowledge God even when it doesn't make sense and put our trust in him. One of those is saying, I'm not going to do the sinful things the people around me are doing. I know it's the cultural way. I know they say, live together before you're married or have sex when you're dating or, or lie to, to, to get ahead or you know all these things that the culture teaches and we see on TV that seems acceptable to our culture. We say, God, I'm not going to do that. I know it's acceptable. Nobody's going to look down on me if I do it. But God doesn't want me to. And I'm going to trust that he has a better plan for me. Okay, that's what you're doing. You're trusting the Lord, not your own understanding. He gives another way. He says, honor the Lord with with your wealth and with the first fruits of all the produce. Now, that's speaking to an agricultural um, society, produce. But he's speaking really of, of, of what you bring in, your income. He says, honor God with the first part of that. It's an act of honor. See, when we give that way, it does two things. It shows that we're grateful, and it shows that we're trusting. It shows that we're grateful, and it shows that we trust him. Because we believe that the one who provided is the one who will continue to provide. And we have to move from liking Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 to living Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Now, last week, I shared with you some money myths. And one of them probably was a little shocking when I said, money doesn't buy happiness. That's a myth. Because we all would probably say that. But the truth is, if you hold money before people, here's a $100 bill. 
Would anybody like this $100 bill? See, hands go up. And, and, once, and if I'd give it to you, you'd smile, right? Yeah, because it makes you happier. So don't, 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 don't be so naive and say, money doesn't make me happy. No way. No, it does. You get a bonus. You get a raise. You get a gift. You go, wow, that's awesome. Made you happier. Now, that happiness will fade, but let's not be foolish. Money does have a connection to some degree of happiness in our lives. But there's another myth, and I didn't share this one with you last week, but I want to share with you today. On the back of this $100 bill is, is, are four words that's on every piece of currency and coinage. And you know what those four words are? In God we trust. And I think it's so beautiful it's on our money because we're basically saying, I trust God, not you. I trust God, not you. But the reality is, it's a myth. Among Christians, most trust this more than God. I wish that wasn't true, but I don't know how to get around the fact that when you look at statistics, that that these have been statistics pretty constant over the last 20 years. A third of people who go to church don't give God anything. Don't give God anything. Not, not, Not even a fraction of what their wealth is. And of those who do, less than 5% actually tithe. Give God the first 10% of what they have. So we may think we trust in God, but, but by lifestyle, by the reality, by the, what's, what research tells us is we don't. We'd rather hold on to this because we, we're afraid God's going to shortchange us somehow. We're afraid that we're not going to have money for the bills or money to do the things we'd like to do or we're not going to have happiness or we're not going to have money for, for retirement. And so we keep thinking that I'm going to live out of fear, not of faith. But the very first word in that verse on giving is honor. Honor the Lord. In the Ten Commandments, we're told to honor our mother and father. If you don't honor your mother and father, what are you doing? You're dishonoring them, right? There's not like a middle ground. I'm not going to honor them, but I'm not going to dishonor them. I'm going to be somewhere in the middle there. You can't. It's either honor or dishonor. If you're in the military, you know that. If someone, someone is, is due honor and you salute them or you honor them in some fashion, to not do that is dishonorable. And so when God says, here's how I want to be honored, we say, well, God, I'm not going to honor you that way. How do we get around this? How do we get around this not being dishonorable to God? I I don't know how we dodge that and say, God, I I don't want to dishonor you, but I don't want to honor you. So let me slide in the middle somewhere. Um, It's a game. And I'm just encouraging you, it does us no good to dishonor God. We want to honor him in our lives. He is faithful to provide. He He will give us what they need. And we don't want to live in this place of fear. We want to walk by faith. And anytime we're stepping out in faith, say, okay, God, doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but I'm trusting you in this. God says, okay. And it's not just financially. I'm talking the bigger picture. This is all about lordship. In every area of your life, say, God, I'm going to do the thing that culture says is foolish, but you say is the right way. I'm going to step out and trust you. Live by faith, not fear. Eric Hudson was up on stage here. He led worship for the first service. Uh, he's had some big changes in his life, even downscaled his, his career in order to serve God better. But in the whole process, he's always found that if I've honored God, God has been true and faithful to me. So I want you to see Eric and his wife if they share their story of giving on this video. We've been tithing for... for since about 2005. Yeah, since about 2005. Okay. And... Um, 
you know, we've, I, I believe we've, we've always, both of us have always been in, in, in church, and we've always known it's the right thing to do. Um, but I think that as we've grown uh, in our relationship with Christ, the reason for why we tithe um, has changed as well. It's definitely a challenge. It takes a lot of trust to know that that money's going to be there even when you give. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a sacrifice um, that you make, you know, and uh, it's, uh, sometimes it's hard because we don't always have the same funds uh, in our accounts that we, we, we've had every, every week or every bi-week, but um, I think you're, you're right. It's, it's trusting and, and knowing that, um, number one, this is God's money and, and uh, knowing that great things are coming. He has a plan for it. I would say that if you're, if you're one of those people that are, that are struggling to tithe, um, give it a shot. And like my wife said, it's, it's about trust. And, uh, you know, in Proverbs 3, 5, he says, it says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own, on your own understanding, but in all your ways, submit to him. And when he says all your ways, that includes your tithing. And that includes the money that he has blessed you and your family with. We realize that tithing is a part of worship. Being on the worship team, there's nothing I love doing more than to worship God through music. Um, but worship is more than a song. And, um, and tithing is a huge part of that. So we've just seen God just work through the money and through the, through the different ministries that have been, have been impacted by the, by the money that we're able to give. And um, you know that's what God, that's what God called us to do, is, and we're supposed to reach out and uh, give people that opportunity to say yes to Him, and that's that's what it's all about. All right, so it's counter it's countercultural, it's counterintuitive, but we want to do things God's way. The second principle regarding finances is to spend less than you make. Seems like a no brainer, right? If you don't have it, you can't spend it, and yet half of Americans are spending more than they make. You know how we're doing that because we've tapped into a source of unlimited funds, or 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 great deal of funds through Visa and Discover and MasterCard. And all of a sudden, the money we don't have, they have, and they're willing to give it to us. And it's, and it's leading us down a path of bondage. Spend less than you make. See, the problem in our culture is, as we increase in our income, our standard of living goes right up with it. And so you can talk to people who make $100,000, $200,000 a year, and they feel like they're just barely making it. And you go, you've got to be kidding me, right? But, but it just goes up. And we, and we just have to, whatever level we're at, doesn't mean, mean I've got to have this much to, to have a decent life. My mom, my mom lives on about $10,000 a year. So fortunately, her house is paid off. And yet she's a very simple woman. And she gives at church, she, she gives birthday gifts to the grandkids, and, uh, and she takes people out for meals now and then. And I think, Mom, how do you do that? How do you manage it? And you will not hear my mom complain at all. She's very happy with what she has because she's able to meet her needs. And so getting a rein on, on our finances and the spending is a key part. And we can choose contentment over complaining. It says in 1 Timothy 6, Godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world that we cannot take anything out of the world, but if we had food and clothing with these, we will be content. And Paul's just saying, what did you have with you when you came into this world? Nothing. They had to give me a diaper, they had to give me a bottle, or, you know, all these things were given to me. I've accumu- then I accumulate stuff all through my life, but when I die, I leave with the same amount of stuff. I leave with nothing. You know, Billy Graham's funeral was Friday. I... All I saw was a casket there. I didn't see a U-Haul trailer behind it. He's not taking any of it with him. 
It all stays behind. And so Paul just says, hey, do you know what? We should be content with even the most basic things, food, clothes, the things God promises to provide, food, shelter, clothing. Our Heavenly Father knows what we need. He says he'll provide. So be content. Don't complain about what we don't have. Now, I know that things are tough today because the average family in America sees a third of their income go to housing. A third. Used to be 25%. Now it's up to a third. And part of the reason is what I showed you last week. We have chosen to live in bigger homes with smaller families. We, our homes today, compared to 1960, are more than twice as big. And yet the family size has shrunk almost an entire person. We've just got a custom. This is what Americans need. This is the way we live. But you know what? If you lived in another culture, or if you lived in, say, the inner city, like in New York City, you'd find out having a 2,400-square-foot home is pretty difficult to afford, right? You'd find a way to manage within the constraints that you have. It's just we've gotten accustomed to bigger lifestyle, bigger taste. And so we often uh, get ourselves in trouble because we've adjusted to the culture. The other third, almost a third, 30% is for um, transportation and food. So now we're up to 63% of our, our budget goes to housing, transportation, and food. And yet we've added some things our parents and grandparents probably didn't have. We've got cell phone plans. We've got internet plans. We've got direct TV or, or, or uh, cable. And we have subscriptions to Netflix and Hulu and, and all these other things that, that really add up to four, five, $600 a month that are all luxuries. They're not necessities. They're luxuries that we enjoy today. We have the luxury of going to coffee shops and paying 5 $6 for a cup of coffee. Now, here's what I've noticed. You'll rarely see an 80-year-old person in those lines getting coffee, even here at our own church. Do you know why? Because when they grew up, you can make a cup of coffee for pennies. Why would I want to pay dinner price for a cup of coffee? And yet we grew up in a culture which says, that's just standard. I get my cup of coffee, and that's a meal right there. That's a meal. But it's just so natural. It's our culture. And, and that's the lure of our culture. It just makes us think we can do things a certain way, but it's, it's putting us in financial trouble. We're spending more than we make. Jeffrey Dew did a study of young couples, and here's what he found. He wrote it in a, in a paper called Bank on It, Thrifty Couples Are the Happiest. He found a reverse correlation with debt and happiness in marriages. The greater the debt, the less the happiness. The less the debt, the greater the happiness. He said he's found it almost true every single time. Couples with great debt bicker more, fight over issues, hide things from each other, and those issues contribute greatly to divorce. In fact, it's the number one cause of divorce is financial stress. And a lot of it is because we're spending beyond what we're bringing in. Couples who've gotten that under control... Who've, who've, who've gotten to where, hey, we've got these, these, these things in place, who we're not, we're not going in, into debt, are happier. Don't we want to be in that place? Of course we do. God often puts in, us in marriages where a saver is paired with a spender. How many of you are in a relationship like that? It, it is true of ours. Uh, when I married Julie, she, she, she liked things. And there's not a problem with that. I just want to let you know, there's not a problem with liking things. And I grew up in a culture where we didn't have much, and I was, I was always pinching pennies. In fact, I joke that I could pinch a penny so hard, Lincoln will say, ouch. <laughs> so I like deals. I like bargains. In fact, if you want a good bargain, 
on March 14th, Blaze Pizza, one of those places you go and you make your own pizza, and you can get a whole pizza, which is normally like 8 bucks, for $3.14 because that is pie day. Pie day. And, uh, you know, we go to places where there's two-for-ones and all that kind of stuff. I love good deals. But here's where the struggle is. When you're frugal, I, I struggle to tip. I struggled to tip when I was younger. You know, did, they, did they give me full service? Well, I, not, not quite, so I'm going to downgrade the tip. And, you know, today I just say 20% at least right off the top. That's 20. I'm just going to do it because that's the right thing to do. But when you're such a tightwad, you can be a killjoy for other people. Your, your kids, your spouse goes, man, mom's no fun or dad's no fun because everything we want to do, we don't get to do. We're always ordering water. Uh, we never get to go on the rides. You know, I never get to buy anything at the store. You know, all those kinds of things. No, 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 no. And so we're just, you can be so frugal. I, I knew a relative who, when his wife came home from the store, looked at the, the canned goods she bought and said, if you got it gotten generic, you would have saved a few bucks. And we get so picky and critical of every single penny. That can be just as destructive. But here's what God did by bringing uh, Julie and I together. We found a good place of balance. I've learned to loosen up, to enjoy things. In fact, if you go down to verse 17 of, of Paul's letter to Timothy, same chapter, he talks about contentment. He says this, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but in, on God, who richly provides us with everything to what? To enjoy. God wants us to have joy with what he's provided. There's nothing wrong with, with an occasional splurge to where, you know what, we're going to go out for a real nice meal. It's our anniversary. Or our family needs a vacation. Or, you know what, I'd really like a, a, a decent pair of shoes that will last and are comfortable. And so I've learned it's okay to spend within your means on some nice things, some things you actually enjoy. Because sometimes even as Christians, we are so frugal that we won't let ourselves enjoy anything. And there's a balance. Spend less of what you make, but enjoy it without guilt. Thirdly, this is the third principle, countercultural, avoid and eliminate debt. It's one of our biggest sources of, of trouble with finances. Proverbs 22, verse 7 says, The rich rules over the poor, and the borrower is slave of the lender. Listen to that. Borrower is what? Slave. It is like we're saying, I want to enlist myself as your slave, Mr. Visa. I would like to, I'd like to be your slave, Aunt Loan. You know, and we're saying, sign me up so I can be responsible to you every month for, for many months to come, maybe for years to come. And so we enslave ourselves. We, we form a kind of bondage. Now, I know there's some debt that's kind of reasonable because it puts us in a better position in the long term. For example, in, the, in most cases, it's better to buy a home than to rent. Not always, but most cases, because you're, you're putting equity in that home. And later on, you're going to get... Uh, uh, that return to you. Not all of it, not the interest, but the, the equity part of it. Student loans. You know, most of us, in order to get an education, have to take a loan to, to go to college. It's just so expensive. And to start a business. Many of us have taken out uh, small business loans to get a, a jump. You couldn't afford the equipment and the space renovation, all the things you needed to start. But the intent is, I, I want to go to school to get a better education so I get a better job that pays more. Or I want to start a business so we can provide better for our family. They're all meant to, to uh, increase in value. Where we get killed is with consumable debt. It's like putting on credit 
things that wear out, like food, clothing, or automobiles. Do you know that, that when we buy an automobile, it's pretty common today, we don't ask ourselves, can I afford it? We say, can I afford the payments? And we don't look at the big picture of what we're paying for it. Dave Ramsey will tell you this, and I'm just going to echo it. It is one of the biggest wastes of money. Now, I, I'm being careful because I know a lot of us have done this, but I just want to tell you, when you take a new car off the lot, it, it decreases by value it, on an average of 11% by the time you get it home. Which means if you spent $24,000 on a new vehicle, by the time you get home, just write a check for $2,600, throw it out the window. It's just decreased in value. In fact, in four years, it'll drop half. So it's a very, those first few years are very expensive years to drive it. Now, you might start to make it up if you keep driving it for maybe 10 or 15 years. But what if you waited four years and bought it when it dropped value to about half and were able to pay cash for it? Wouldn't that be a lot better? Now, I just confess, it's not very common. In fact, most of our married life, we've taken out car loans. And then we aggressively try to pay them off, pay extra to get it over with as soon as we can. But I admit, we've had to take car loans sometimes because we were very poor with saving. We didn't have money saved up to buy a car. So we had to go on loans. And I'm going to address that in a little bit. But the last car we bought, we paid cash for because we saved up and we're in a position. And if we can get in a position where where we pay for things as we go instead of leveraging credit to get them, instead of 6% or 8% or credit cards, 18 to 20% interest being paid to someone else, we actually could put money in savings and start getting 3%, 5%, 8%, 12% interest for us. So be careful with this issue of debt. Our culture pushes Discover Card and Visa and, and short-term sight. But what you do when you, when you say, I'm going to avoid new debt and I'm going to eliminate the old debt, it shows patience. It shows I'm willing to wait till I can afford it. If you struggle in this area, which many of us do, I, I would guess half the people in this room have debt issues, I want to encourage you to go to um, Financial Peace University. It's a class we offer twice a year as a church. One of the big things Dave Ramsey hammers on is, is this very issue. Get rid of debt. Attack it with gazelle-like intensity. Just go at it. Just keep Because once you get that debt up, there's such freedom. There's such freedom because you've come up from under the, 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 the slavery to the one you owe the debt to. So, very countercultural. And then the last one, which also is countercultural, save for the future. Save for the future. I admit, I was so poor with this. I was so poor. Um, most of our lives, we've had very, very little savings. 60% of Americans don't have enough in their savings account that if there was an emergency today that it would cost $1,000, like... like uh, Major, um, major car repair or a medical bill, they would have to take a loan out or put it on credit, 60%. 40% of Americans have zero saved up. And, and, the, and the fear is we're heading to a time in our lives, many of us, where retirement, where we, we've got to think ahead. In fact, the Bible says this, Go to the ant, O sluggard, consider her ways and be wise, without having any chief, officer or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. Some of your Bibles will say she stores her bread in summer. You know, you look at the, the bugs 
and the beasts. And how they'll store things up for winter every year is just like it's ingrained in them. It's, it's, it's part of their wiring. They will do that. He says, you're smarter than an ant, aren't you? You're smarter than the, than, the, than the creatures. Don't you know better? Don't you know what's coming? Think of the future. Plan ahead. Save. It shows foresight. It shows foresight. Now, I'll tell you a story of my life that I didn't even start thinking of saving until I got married. So here I am, 28 years old, decide, you know what? I better start thinking of the future. So I start putting in the minimum in an IRA, $2,000. And I've continued to do that every year. Now, I want to show you something, or at least tell you something. If you do that, if you put in $2,000 a year in an account that says gets, gets you 7% return, you can go higher places, lower places, but just to say 7% return. From, the, from my age, 28, if I keep doing that until I'm 68... That account will have grown to $438,000. Now, that may not be enough to carry me all the way through retirement, but what if I did this? What if, what if when we were 28, we did it for Julie, too? What if we did it for both of us all, all 40 years? We would have double that. We'd have uh, almost $900,000. But I want to show you this. If I would have started when I was 18, 10 years earlier, from 18 to 28, that's, that's 2,000 a year, that's $20,000. If I would have put in that $20,000 starting with 18 to 28, by the time I'm 68, that one account would be worth $909,000, more than doubled. And all I put in was, was $20,000 more. It gained me over $400,000. That's, that's the benefit of compound interest over time. And so you are smart. If you're a young couple, if you're a young person, don't make the foolish mistake of someday we'll catch up. You're missing this, this beautiful opportunity that if we get started early and make the hard decision to do it now, we're going to benefit down the road. It's going it's to help us. And see, what it enables us to do is not only to live in the future, but to give in the future. I want to give to my grandkids. I want to help them get a jump on their college education or maybe even provide a down payment for their home. I want to set my grandkids up for financial success. And I can't do that if I'm not in a position where I, I have more to, to, to use, to give. I want to help charities. When I die, and I don't know how long I'm going to live, but when I die, I hope there's money left that I can give to charities we believe in, to ministries, to churches that we believe in, that we participated in. We want to be able to do that. And, and many of you don't even have a will. You don't know where things are going to go when you die. And I just want to encourage you, on March 13th, we're offering a free seminar. There's a group called Financial Planning Ministries, a Christian ministry, that will come and offer a free educational seminar to help you plan for your future. And they will show you the benefit of a living trust over a will. They'll even do the, the paperwork to, for free to do that for you so you can have confidence that when I die, I know where things are going to go. No strings attached. Uh, there's informa- information in your bulletin about that. But save for the future. Our culture says, says enjoy it now. God says enjoy some of it now and save some of it for the future. These four things, honoring God at the first and best, spending less than we make, avoiding and eliminating debt and saving for the future are all countercultural. Some of you may say, Pastor, I've got one of those in place or two of those in place. Some of you may say, Pastor, we don't have any of them in place. So here's what you do. You just decide, we're going to start here. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna start with one of them. And my recommendation is do the first one first. Because, because you can never lose when you're trusting God and putting him first in your life. I would say that's the cornerstone of everything else. If you're married, here's what you need to do. Have a conversation as a couple. Because it needs to be a joint decision. 
And you need to agree together, like, here's where we're going to do. Here's where we're going. We want God to guide us in this, so we need to make these changes in our lifestyle to make this possible. And see, what I love about God is, is God modeled it for us, not in the sense of financial ways, but in other ways. Because here's what God did for us. He gave his first and best when he sent his only son, his only begotten son, for you and for me. Didn't hold it back. Jesus spent his life for us. He poured out his blood on a cross for us. He sacrificed himself for us. He denied his own pleasures for us. Why? So our debt could be paid. So our debt could be eliminated forever. The debt we owe because of our sin. The debt we owe to God because we've disobeyed him. He says, I'm going to wipe it out forever. I'm going to cleanse you of your guilt, of your shame, of all the things you've done. I'm going to wipe it out. It's going to be gone forever. And the result is we can be saved for eternity. Not just here on earth, but an eternal life with God. God wants that for you. He wants that for me. And it it begins when we just say, I'm going to trust you, God. I'm going to trust you. And I know this is a hard area for many of us. But in reality, it's probably the most practical area in which we can demonstrate trust.